Bodybuilding Dietitians podcast. Today you are joined by your hosts, Tiara and Jack, and thank you so much for tuning in to what is now our 15th episode. Pretty happy that we've made it to number 15. Um, So today we are doing another sports nutrition focused podcast. So we asked a bunch of the listeners on Instagram for questions that they had regarding sports nutrition and what they wanted to know. We just want to say thank you to everyone who sent in a question. We got a bunch of really good ones. So we're going to kick it off with this first one says intra-workout supplements such as cluster dextrin. Is there a benefit? So yeah, we also had another one from Junior Yang, which is also about intra-workout. And he said, when should you try to replenish carbs in the middle of a workout? So basically, yeah, when should you start drinking that? So to answer the first question, basically, in my opinion, I don't think there's too much difference between something such as cyclic dextrin or any other simple sugar such as glucose, fructose, or... I really think it's just a marketing technique, eh? They're just trying to come out with the next new thing, but you can't really beat glucose. (laughs) Yeah. And yeah, we did a little bit of research and basically... Cluster dextrin, which is in the question, um, they basically just market that as saying it passes through the stomach quicker. But yeah, again, I think any other, maybe just experiment for yourself and see how you feel. Having something maybe even like Powerade versus dextrin. But honestly, I think it's just a marketing tool to make you pay an extra like $50 a kilo. So Yeah, exactly. And even you can speak to that because you've been experimenting with intra-workout lately. So how's that worked out for you? Haha. <laughs> yeah, so I did use intra workout for a little bit, but I found that because I have quite a large pre training meal, that it honestly just makes me feel a little bit sick. So I think I would rather just eat a little bit more after my workout rather than try and squeeze in even more food in my workout. Mm-hmm. So you didn't experience much of a benefit there in performance? No, no difference in performance, maybe a little bit fuller throughout the whole workout. But again, if it's going to make me feel a little bit sick, then it's probably not worth it. Not worth the pump. (laughs) Okay. And what about that second one? So with this one, obviously you don't want to be drinking it in the second half of your workout really, because it is going to take time for you to absorb, sorry, digest and absorb it and metabolize the carbohydrates. So personally, I would say even from your first working set, I would start drinking that intra-workout. Yeah, and even it says here that to replenish carbs. So that's more to just spike blood glucose levels because as we know, and we've mentioned on previous podcasts, even doing a very, like a really hard workout in the gym is only going to burn through maximum 40% of your glycogen. And that's working really hard. So there's no need to necessarily replenish glycogen in a workout. And I don't think you, you couldn't replenish glycogen in a workout anyway, because mm, it takes about four hours. Yeah, your body's not in that parasympathetic nervous state at all. And you don't have the hormones and the enzymes floating around in your bloodstream, which would optimize glycogen production anyway because you're trying to do the exact opposite you're trying to break down glycogen into glucose sweet okay so we got another question from dan who's one of my friends i used to run with down at the track and he said thoughts on bicarb before a lactic race so this is pretty interesting because 
some of you... Or maybe you want to explain what a lactic race is. Okay, so a lactic race. So a lot of you have probably heard of, you know, lactic acid and runners, swimmers, sports athletes in general talk about that lactate burn and, you know, lactic acid building up in their muscles. So lactic acid is a byproduct of anaerobic metabolism. So this means when you're doing very high intensity exercise, probably anywhere between like one to eight minutes and your body, because it's trying to run at such a fast rate, it doesn't have the opportunity to actually use oxygen to break down carbohydrates. So you go through anaerobic metabolism, which means you're not using oxygen. Anyway, so when you're going through anaerobic metabolism, in a cell in your body, you break down glucose into pyruvate. And normally if you had access to oxygen, this pyruvate would be broken down into acetyl-CoA, which could go through the Krebs cycle, which could make more ATP. Anyone who studied any biology would probably have some sort of diagram in their head like I do right now. But anyway, if you don't have access to oxygen, that pyruvate gets converted into lactate. Now lactate, one exits the muscle cell, goes into the bloodstream, goes to your liver, and through gluconeogenesis, that lactate can be converted back into glucose, come back to your muscle cell, and keep powering anaerobic metabolism. So lactate's actually a really good thing. But the thing is, through lactate production, you do produce hydrogen ions. So here we go. How do I start this? So in the bloodstream... I can say it a lot quicker. <laughs> no, this is cool. I like explaining <laughs> hydrogen this Hydrogen ions basically lower the pH of the blood. Yeah, exactly. So your pH of your blood is around 7.4 and the pH of the muscle cells is 7. Now you want both of these to stay at those numbers so that you can perform optimally. But when you're producing a lot of lactate, then you are producing these hydrogen ions and they make your muscle cells more acidic. So they'll lower that pH from seven. Now the theory behind taking bicarb supplementation, which you can just get from literally baking soda, is that bicarb has a pH of 8.4. So if you have bicarbonate in your bloodstream, a very high dose, then it can act as an extracellular buffer for those hydrogen ions. So while your muscle cells are going down from pH of seven, this 8.4 pH bicarbonate can help bring that back up again so that it can stay at that optimal pH level. Anyway, so yeah, that's the theory behind bicarbonate supplementation. The supplementation protocol for bicarbonate is anywhere between 200 to 300 milligrams per kilogram of body weight 60 to 90 minutes before exercise and i did a quick little calculation earlier if you had like a 65 kilogram runner this would be anywhere between 13 to probably 20 grams of bicarbonate and jack and i have learned about this in our studies and a lot of the reports say that it causes a lot of gastrointestinal issues it may enhance exercise performance, but a lot of people just aren't willing to do it because can you imagine taking like 20 plus grams of bicarbonate? I remember one time I made pancakes and I put too much in the pancake batter and I was like burping and it was so, it tasted so bad. So I don't know, there's kind of a 
how, how do you call it, Jack? Is it a risk to reward benefit? What's yeah, it? I would say. Yeah, just weigh up the pros and cons. But anyway, thoughts on bicarb before that race? Uh, I don't know. I, I you would, could experiment it with if you like. Mm, but I would say again, it's individual based, and if you can handle tolerate, because it's basically like drinking bicarb, the thing you have in your pantry, um, mm-hmm. pretty much. Like, literally, it is the Yeah, same. literally, have fun. Um, um, if you do buy it, don't buy it from a supplement company, please. Just buy baking soda. <laughs> but I would say, because you did say before a race, never try something for the first time before a competitive event. Always trial it in training first, because you really don't want to risk not performing well, because you've got a stomach full of bicarbonate, and you've never done that before. <laughs> Sweet. Okay, so next question. So we have another one saying, also by Dan, saying coffee or pre-workout and 400 meter sprinting. Okay, so there's actually been some interesting studies done on this comparing coffee and Red Bull on exercise performance when caffeine is matched. And they've actually found that if the caffeine dosage is matched, there's really no difference in exercise performance. So, mm, But coffee and Red Bull both have caffeine as the main ingredient, whereas pre-workout might have different ingredients. Oh, like some beta-alanine or... Or nootropics mm. and stuff like that. So Yeah, it depends again, it, on what you're buying. <laughs> yeah, it depends on the pre-workout, I would say. But ultimately, the caffeine um, will have the biggest impact on your performance yeah but i would say because the dosage there's three to six milligrams per kilogram of body weight at least an hour before exercise the thing about coffee is that you never really know how much caffeine is in a cup of coffee they did a study actually at the university of queensland and it can range from like 100 milligrams to 250 milligrams depending on your barista so yeah, I would say if you really want to dose your caffeine accurately, take Noto's pills. That's definitely the most accurate way to do it. And even with pre-workouts, I've always kind of questioned because, you know, it says the amount of each ingredient in, you know, a single scoop, but still it's a mixture of a bunch of different things. So how do you really know if you're taking a scoop and you're actually getting that exact amount of caffeine or you're not just getting some extra beta alanine? Do you ever think about that? No, I don't dwell on those things. Oh, <laughs> I don't dwell on it. I just question it. <laughs> All right, cool. Um, next one. So this is by uh, Lawrence. And oh, happy birthday as well, Lawrence, for yesterday. <laughs> what is generally a good range for fats in the pre and post-workout meal? Mm, so this is going to be highly individual depending on someone's fats. But I'd say... Pre-workout is probably more important for fat intake compared to post-workout, especially if you are of a very healthy body weight and very active. If you don't have enough fat in your pre-workout meal, and I've certainly experienced this anecdotally, you can feel a little bit hypoglycemic because if you eat a lot of carbohydrates before your workout, one, there's going to be that insulin response, which is going to be driving those carbohydrates into your muscle cells. But also if you start exercising, exercise is a stimulus for GLUT4, which is the receptor on our muscle cells to come to the surface as as well and soak up carbohydrates and glucose too. So fats really help to slow down digestion because if you just have a lot of carbohydrates and very little fat, you're going to 
it's almost, imagine your muscle cells as like sponges. They're going to soak up that blood glucose and you just might feel a bit hypoglycemic. It's not very pleasant. I felt like anxious and stressed in the gym. It's, it's not fun, but a good range. Again, it's going to be highly individual on what your daily fat intake is, but I'd say anywhere between 10 to 20 grams before a workout. Yeah, I would personally, I would probably put more fats in the pre-workout meal and then less in the post-workout meal. So like maybe for me, it would be like a max of maybe 10 grams post-workout. And, but ultimately if you're in a surplus and you're constantly in a fed state, then it's not really going to make, if you're, maybe if you're looking for that 1% benefit, then sure, it'll make a difference. But otherwise, I don't think it will. But yeah, you'd really only want less fats primarily in your post-workout meal if you were like training twice a day because then you really want to try to optimize glycogen resynthesis and you want to speed up that digestion. Kind of just use fats strategically. Like sometimes when I have a post-workout meal at work and I know I'm not going to be eating again for another three or four hours, I'll put a bit more fats in my post-workout meal. Like I'll have a few more nuts or a bit of peanut butter, some coconut oil or something just to slow down that digestion so I can survive throughout my shift without being too hungry. But if like sometimes Jack and I come home from the gym pretty late at night and a post-workout meal is pretty high carb, low fat because we know we're going to be eating our last meal of the day dinner in like an hour or two. So we kind of want an appetite for that. So moving on to the next question uh, from Tegan, how important is timing carbs around training for muscle preservation during a fat loss period, disregarding training intensity? Mm. So yeah, this is... That's hard to answer if you disregard training intensity. Well, yeah, I would say that training intensity is the main argument around that. So obviously, if you have more carbohydrate you have one of your main fuel sources for the workout is glycogen and glucose and therefore you can train harder as opposed to just using fats fat as a energy source so in terms of like carbohydrates are an anabolic fuel source in them in itself so they might trigger more anabolic responses and processes but other that would be very very minuscule so i think having them as an energy source would probably be the main argument. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm, Yeah, I totally agree with that. Okay, so the next question from Kegs, are BCAAs really as bad as the research says? So my first response to this would be to just reference one of our other podcast episodes, episode number five, which, yeah, in the title, it just says myth-busting the science behind BCAAs. Pretty much went off my nut about branch chain amino acids (laughs) but yeah basically to sum it that up in 10 seconds they're not necessarily bad but it's basically like drinking an incomplete protein because it only contains leucine valine and isoleucine out of nine essential amino acids so yeah if you're going to drink anything i would either drink a complete protein like whey protein or the essential amino acids which you can buy in a powder form as well yeah but even they're pretty expensive so Mm. might as well just drink whey protein yeah yeah but yeah they're not going to kill you but they're not necessarily going to make your life better either so yeah definitely go back to episode five it's basically like drinking expensive flavored water Mm -hmm. yeah and (laughs) i just think one of the funniest things is is that you always get these people 
who are saying bad things about vegans, but they're drinking their BCAAs when they're drinking an even more incomplete protein source compared to any vegan out there. So think about that. So this next question is uh, for Tiara from Lox, and it is diet recommendations <laughs> for the sport of polo. Okay. <laughs> um, so... I, I remember Jack and I were in the kitchen before and I think I got the sport of polo wrong. What? what? I, <laughs> I thought it was the sport where two, two people are on horses and then you've got the big pole and then you run at each other and stab them or like you try to knock them off their horse. But apparently I was wrong. Yeah, that's jousting. Okay, so but they're pretty similar because they're both on horses, right? With, yeah. With, with big sticks? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so... But for the sport of polo, they hit a ball. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. So diet recommendations. <laughs> um, I don't know. If you want to be strong to be able to hit this ball with a big ass stick, you obviously should be lifting some weights. And diet recommendations for that would be eat an optimal amount of protein, around two grams per kilogram. Probably prioritize carbohydrates to grow your muscles and eat enough fat for health but <laughs> i don't know that that is a tough question really i think what think about um jockeys who race they have to be light and compact because if oh, they're yeah, riding on you horseback definitely, yeah you'd certainly need to watch your weight that's for sure yeah but you still need strong arms so prioritize gaining weight in your arms bicep curls every day you're so, a great sports dietitian thank you very much <laughs> Okay, what's another one? So this one's by Oliver, and it is progressively heavy squats for athletes looking to improve speed and explosiveness. So when we look at power, which is basically um, mass times acceleration. Biomechanics. So yeah, if we're looking for athletes who are focused on power, which is basically um, speed and explosiveness. Yeah, this I don't know too much on this. This isn't really sports nutrition, but... We have done a little bit of this in our courses, but basically you would be looking to combine strength-based things so, such as squats with power movements as well. So jumping squats or say on the Smith machine, you can do, um, if a bench press, you can do like power presses where you basically push the bar up out as, as hard as you can. Mm. And yeah, incorporating resistance bands and stuff like that. So Yeah, you just really want to emphasize that explosive component. So I think probably really slowing down the eccentric and then being very explosive on the concentric portion of the movement. Mm. And you're probably looking at much lower rep ranges too, I'd say anywhere between like probably two to six reps for those types of movements. You wouldn't go beyond that, I don't think. Mm. Yeah, need to hit up Julian Brady. He's one of our friends. He's an exercise physiologist. Um, yeah, he'll probably be able to better answer your question. <laughs> Sweet. All right. So another one. Training while sick with a cold. Better to take time off. Will you lose strength or should you lift light weights? So yeah, I was actually sick last week with a head cold, but I think most people generally go via the rule where if it's from your neck upwards, then if you feel all right to go to the gym, then go for it. But if it's um, neck or head down so it incorporates your stomach and a bit of nausea then it's probably not the best idea to go to the gym mm -hmm. but yeah so example for me I went on Tuesday when I was feeling okay and had a decent workout but then on Wednesday and Thursday I was really not feeling it at all and yeah I just took that those days off and mm -hmm. 
in the, you're not going to lose strength or muscle in two days. So there's nothing to worry about at all. So yeah, I'd really personally, I'd really prioritize recovery. Like if you know that you're going to go into the gym and you're not going to be able to perform optimally, I just, I just take a day off, just recover, let your body rest and then hit the gym again when you're feeling strong. Like, I don't think there's, it's not necessary to go to the gym and do your workout, but like with light weights or do a deload or anything like that, unless you have a deload planned, but really just prioritize recovery. Okay. Um, next one. How do you know if you're eating too little calories when trying to lose fat slash weight? So there, there's a few answers we could give to this one. The first one I would say is basically from a numerical standpoint. So typically the literature at the moment says anywhere from about 0.5 to 1% of your body total body weight loss each week. So if you're going over that, then I guess, yeah, it's more likely that you will be dipping into muscle loss as well as fat. So. Yeah, so just a very fast rate of weight loss. Mm. But then we can also combine it with other things as well. So more based on the individual. So how are you feeling? Are your workouts pretty crappy? Are you not getting a pump during your workout? Are you not still, are you dropping strength rapidly or are you failing to gain strength? And and mentally, like what's your food focus like? Like, do you dream about food and do you wake up every morning and even after you finish a meal, all you're thinking about is the next meal? If you're highly, highly food focused, that's certainly an indication that you might be eating way too little calories as well. Yeah, but ultimately it'll depend on the goal. So mm-hmm. if you're doing a comp prep, I think... Oh yeah, that's to be expected. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we have a another question here from Kyle. And this is basically just on abolishing the talk on fat burners. And what supplements does one essentially need to give their body the best chance of losing weight? And... Yeah, top three subs that are not crazy marketed as well. Mm. Yeah, so to answer the first portion, if you're a natural athlete, then there really are no crazy fat-burning products out there because um, if there were, they would all be banned because... Are you would... telling me I can't take clenbuterol? <laughs> Is that what you're saying? <laughs> are you trying to break my heart? <laughs> anyway... <laughs> Yeah, so if you see all those things like Oxy Shred and the Fat Burner FX and all those like the Green Tea X1500 or whatever. Jesus, my God. Please don't drink that stuff. Protect your liver, my friends. <laughs> yeah, so basically they, yeah, they're not really effective at all. Mm-hmm. Um, the only, they're, sure, there are those ingredients in there, they might have a very, very small amount of efficacy like say caffeine for example has been shown to have some fat burning properties but it just has nowhere near enough potential to actually have any practical considerations Mm, and there's some other ingredients like i think they're called thermogenics and they just make you feel freaking hot and you sweat a lot and sure that burns calories but that's not very pleasant i think you'd probably burn a lot more calories if you just slightly reduced your food intake or did a little bit more cardio. You don't want to be uh, some super sweaty, like, person. <laughs> but yeah, then you compare it to anabolics, like, or sorry, just performance enhancing drugs like DNP, and like, mm. it's just a completely bo- different ball game. 
but obviously they're banned and illegal and etc. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, DNP that you can die from that because your body is just trying to constantly expel heat. And we actually even in one of our um biochemistry subjects, we actually had to do a assignment on DNP, which yeah. is pretty interesting. Yeah, but if like unfortunately there's just no better you can't beat adequate sleep, a calorie deficit and resistance training like no supplement is ever even going to come close to those for helping you lose weight. So mm. it's just the truth. And yeah, there aren't, to answer the second part, there aren't any three supplements that I would say are good for weight loss. I would say just diet and training, um, especially if you're a natural athlete. Um, mm. But yeah, I think, should we recommend three supplements that we would well three supplements i'd certainly say creatine and caffeine are my top two would you have Mm. a third well if you consider protein powder as a caffeine uh, as a supplement then yeah (laughs) yeah if you uh, that's true Yeah. yeah but yeah i also wanted to talk a little bit about creatine because i think some people just think of creatine as being one of the most highly researched supplements but they don't actually know why it's so good and why it's beneficial So basically, Tierra was talking a little bit about the energy systems and your creatine phosphate system is one of the three main energy systems and it's used in the first like one to 10 seconds of exercise. And whereas the anaerobic and the aerobic system are for slightly longer, especially the aerobic, which uses fat as an energy source. But basically what supplementing with creatine does is it provides more fuel, fuel stores for the creatine phosphate system. So you are able to recover more quickly after using that system and use it more frequently basically yeah it's because you're able to rapidly regenerate atp because when atp as anyone who's studied physiology or biology knows that atp is like the currency system within our body to give us energy and the way that atp gives us energy is by breaking a phosphate away from atp which is adenosine triphosphate and it becomes adenosine diphosphate so there's only two phosphates attached to the adenosine but what creatine phosphate does is it rapidly regenerates atp by donating another phosphate so you can keep producing energy and yeah it is just a phenomenal supplement for strength and power but also there's a lot of research coming out now with the benefits of creatine for cognitive performance Because especially in vegans and vegetarians who don't eat much animal-based proteins or protein sources, because creatine, we normally get it from meat. But if you are a vegan or vegetarian, you're not eating much meat, normally your diet would be lacking in creatine. And it's actually so important for the brain too, which there's a lot of really exciting research coming out in that area. But at the same time, if you are an individual who does eat a lot of meat and you start supplementing with creatine, you might not notice that much, like much of a difference. There are responders and non-responders, but certainly if you are a vegan or a vegetarian, supplementing with creatine can probably make a world of difference to your performance and maybe even just see how you feel mentally. But supplement protocol would be three to five grams per day that's every single day even on days that you don't train it doesn't really matter when you take it 
And new research is coming out saying that the dosing protocol may not actually be required. Like they used to recommend mm, five. All the, all the dosing protocol does, which is basically having it multiple times a day, is it basically saturates your creatine stores faster. Mm. So if you if you just take five grams a day, it'll just take a bit longer to saturate your stores. So loading it, um, which is having it more frequently throughout the day, mm. will just yeah you'll gain the benefits slightly faster so yeah so it just depends how like are you willing to wait an extra three weeks and save yourself quite a bit of money or do you want the gains now <laughs> but i don't yeah. think i don't think it's as slow as three weeks i think it takes uh, eric helm said it can take like up to a month to fully restore creatine phosphate but yeah if you were to do a dosing protocol 20 grams per day for around seven days and split that 20 grams up into four five gram boluses and then following that seven day loading protocol just take three to five grams every single day yeah and don't pay through the roof of it as well all you need is just simple creatine monohydrate which you can get like a kilo of it for like i think twenty dollars from vpa mm. or something so sneaky plug go to my instagram page <laughs> click the link in my bio <laughs> click the link in my bio and you can get yourself 15 percent no. off Good hey morning. are you just jealous because i gave him my name instead of yours <laughs> i'm not gonna stoop that low anyway <laughs> hey i'm trying to save you money <laughs> cool okay so do we have any more uh, yeah, so we have one from Hayden Morris, which is, have you experimented with any nootropics and what would you recommend for better focus? Uh, I have not experimented with nootropics. What about you? Uh, no, I haven't. But nootropics are basically cognitive enhancers. And again, it would come under what is legal and what's illegal. Mm -hmm. And I don't think there's too many that are effective that are legal. Um, Your friend, we won't name his name. Didn't he take some? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure lots of lots of people have taken. I know, but didn't what was his what was his um, experience? Yeah, but it definitely worked. Do you know the name of the one he took? No. No. Okay. Sorry, we're not very educated in that field. Yeah, we haven't had too much experience with those any of those products. But personally, I find that black coffee or any caffeine in general helps me a lot with my cognitive function and just better focus. So. Mm -hmm. Coffee in the mornings are good. All right, so, oh yeah, we did have one other question. Maybe we'll even end on this one. This was from my friend, um, her name's Tarsala. So she's in the BENS program at UQ. What's she, the BENS program? The Bachelor of Exercise and Nutrition Sciences. Anyway, she was in a lecture called Food 2000, a subject Jack and I did a few years ago. And they were saying that salt or sodium is a contributor to obesity and she heard this and she messaged me and she was like Tara is this true like I don't understand how can salt be a contributor to obesity so what do you have to say about that well I think it is it's bringing up the argument of correlation versus causation mm -hmm. and sure I think there's a correlation between high salt intake and obesity but I don't think it's a cause. Yeah, salt or sodium or sodium chloride, it has no caloric like value. So Jesus, if you want to down salt all you want, do it, but you're not going to necessarily gain tissue from that. Salt is only correlated with obesity because salt is a flavor enhancer. And if you have a saltier meal, 
not too salty. <laughs> it makes it taste really good and you want to eat more food. Like how many times have you guys ever compared like eating nuts? Like you have salted almonds versus unsalted almonds. The salted almonds taste way better and you want to eat so many more of them. So yeah, that's just a little example. But yeah, salt is not necessarily going to make you gain tissue weight. You might just feel more inclined to eat more food. Mm. And especially most processed food is high in sodium as well. So, mm -hmm. but yeah, if you're like me and don't add too much salt to your meals, then having a decent amount of salt prior to your workout, like with your pre-workout or pre-workout meal or pre-workout drink, then trust me, it'll change your workouts. Mainly because it'll give you a much better pump and you'll feel a lot fuller as well, which can potentially lead to greater strength improvements as well. Mm. Yeah, so especially if you're an athlete, there is no reason in the world to fear salt because if you're exercising all the time, you are sweating a lot and you're actually losing sodium as an electrolyte through your sweat. and. Sodium is just so important for, we have every single cell in our body has these sodium potassium transporters and it's so important for us to have adequate sodium so that those transporters can transport nutrients and different things across our cell membranes. And also even in your small intestine, you have a sodium glucose transporter. So in order to get glucose from your small intestine into your bloodstream, you need sodium in that transporter to move it across so that you can utilize that glucose as a fuel source. So I think a lot of people are unnecessarily scared of salt when there's just, there's nothing to fear. Sure, if you have like a super salty Chinese meal one night, <laughs> you know, and you drink a lot of water and you have a lot of carbs, you wake up the next morning and you might weigh like a kilogram more, but that's simply just extra fluid weight because water follows sodium. But there's really no reason to fear it. And also your body is going to adjust to higher sodium intakes. So if you start to consume more sodium because the body wants to stay at homeostasis and control serum sodium levels. So you're just gonna produce more hormones that help to excrete more sodium through the urine. So it's really gonna keep you in balance. Mm. Yeah. And if you do try having some salt pre-workout, I just thought I would give you a recommendation on how much to have is because when I say a salt shot, some people might interpret that as like a... Not a vodka a, salt yeah. shot. <laughs> <laughs> like that would be a lot of salt, but all, I, all you really need is like half a teaspoon to like two thirds of a teaspoon. Mm -hmm. And just literally shot it. Jack put it in his pre-workout once and it was nasty. So yeah, just salt that shot, shot that salt. <laughs> But uh, yeah, like Australian dietary guidelines recommend that the average adult consumes like 2000 milligrams of sodium per day. But this is not, it's just not relevant for an athlete because guys, we need more sodium. If you don't have sodium, you're going to start getting muscle cramps. Like if you ever do calf raises at the gym, you'll probably notice it there that your calves just start to cramp up. Yeah. So do we have any more questions or is that it? I think that's it. Sweet. All right. Well, we smashed through those. Now to finish this episode, one thing that we learned this week. I'm going first. Did yeah. you go first last week? Yeah. Okay. One thing that I learned this week is that even though I don't want to be a clinical dietitian, 
I still have a part of me that is a clinical dietitian. And I know this because my dad had hip surgery this week and he was in the hospital and he called me up, you know, after the surgery. It all went really well. He's doing, he's doing phenomenally. He's just had arthritis in his hip for like two years. He's been in a lot of pain, but I'm really excited for him to not be in pain anymore. Anyway, he called me up, you know, and he's like, oh, the hospital food, it's crap. <laughs> They're just serving me white bread with ham sandwiches and I'm, I'm picking out the ham, you know, and I have no appetite. I think I don't want to um, eat in this place, you know, maybe I'll take advantage of trying to lose some weight while I'm here. And my brain just went ding, like that was exactly what so many patients would tell us last year in the hospital. And honestly, guys, when you are in the hospital and you're trying to recover from an illness or a surgery, that is not the time to be losing weight. That is the time to be eating at maintenance or hopefully in a slight surplus so that you can repair your wounds so that you can adequately recover. So, you know, I was telling my dad, like, dad, I know you might not have an appetite because you're laying in bed all day. You're not doing much activity, but in order to heal your hip, um, and recover from the surgery, you really need to eat some food. So I put together a little goodie bag for him full of like his favorite foods. And I went to the hospital the following night and I brought him just a bunch of like high protein treats, like a big tub of Chobani yogurt. I baked him some fresh chicken legs. I brought him cans of beans, cans of sardines, <laughs> like a bunch of nuts and seeds, lots of fruits, some like protein drinks, just stuff that I know he really likes. Cause I remember a few years ago, I was in the hospital for like one night and I didn't want to eat the food either. Cause I was picky and probably didn't know much about nutrition. Anyway, dad brought me some cans of sardines, so I returned the favor. But yeah, that's what I learned this week, that part of me is still a clinical dietitian. So the past month or so, I've been experimenting a bit with my diet, and because my calories are well over 4,000 now, I was trying to incorporate more higher GI sources. So instead of, say, brown pasta, I'd have white pasta, and so on things like that and yeah i've actually to be honest quite struggled with that in terms of more my microbiome so like it would definitely make me feel less full which was good but i would find that my weight was going absolutely crazy like it would it would be skyrocketing up and i was probably not feeling the best as well and especially my digestive system and yeah i think that's definitely related to just how long I've been on high fiber now like in prep I was probably having like 150 grams of fiber a day maybe minimum <laughs> which is pretty crazy for most people but like I definitely built up to that very slowly and I would never recommend anyone do that instantaneously um <laughs> yeah it but yeah it sound, it does sound like a lot but it, it it really did work for me and it really and it, I didn't do it with the intention of eating that much fiber. It was more that I chose very high fiber options or wholesome foods and my calories were just still high. So if you combine all of those things together, it'll result in high, a lot of fiber intake. So mm. yeah, there's, there's no real method to that other than for hunger curbing. And yeah, so I'm still, I'm definitely eating a lot less fiber now. It's probably around 75 grams or so or 75 to 100 and yeah and i tried bringing it down to around like 50 to 60 
And yeah, my body was just literally having none, none of it. So. Yeah, and you think so, like the recommendations for males are like 30 grams per day, or generally they say 14 grams per thousand calories. And a lot of people in the public, because they eat such highly processed diets, fail to reach even 30 grams per day. So, mm, Which is probably half of the meal for me. Yeah, so. exactly. Oh my gosh. But that's pretty cool that you can anecdotally say that you genuinely just feel better eating more nutrient-rich foods. Yeah. And I will say, like, there, a lot of people say high-fiber diets can lead to things like, um, what's it called? Leaky gut. Yeah, leaky gut. And, yeah, I just really don't agree with that. It's the exact opposite. Jack Stad is a gastroenterologist, and it is the exact opposite, guys. Having a high-fiber diet is going to help move things throughout your GIT system and your colon and you're going to excrete the stuff that you don't want. <laughs> mm. That's a really good thing. Yeah, the the only things that I would say are a bit risky with a high fiber diet is that one because you're eating all this fiber and it doesn't it's not able to be absorbed or broken down by your GIT, there is a risk it will block the absorption of other nutrients. So you do have to stay on top of your intake of every other micronutrient make sure you're having adequate requirements of those and also if you really if your git just literally can't handle all that fiber you may may get constipation or you it just won't agree with you but fortunately for me i i'm able to handle it very easily but if you slowly increase it over time yeah but again i'm not saying that anyone needs to have that much fiber the recommendations are 25 grams a day for females and 30 grams for guys and that should be a piece of cake to hit really yeah i know i don't think there's any excuses for why you can't hit that but um yeah high fiber is awesome like you produce more short chain fatty acids more butyrate and that actually protects your intestinal cell lining so that you don't suffer from things like leaky gut yeah anyway all right cool Thank you guys so much for tuning in to our 15th episode. We hope you enjoyed it. Again, if you enjoy these episodes, please take a screenshot, post it to your Instagram story, tag myself, tag Jack, tag the bodybuilding dietitians. We've been receiving a lot of really wonderful feedback lately, and we just want to let you guys all know that we really appreciate it. We appreciate every single listener and every single person who supports us. So thank you, and we will catch you next week. See you next week, guys. Bye.